Let's pray together. God, I am so grateful that you um, are a God who loves us, God, that you don't just uh, call us to love or even just merely show us how to love, but God, that you love us um, and you empower us to love through your spirit. So God, I pray that as we look at these words, I, God, I ask that you would convict me, um, challenge me. God, that each one of us here, that we would see uh, the many uh, shortcomings in our lives and the way that we love others. And God, I pray that rather than walking out um, with guilt, God, I, would, I pray that we would walk out rejoicing in this God who loves us so much. And so change us with that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so would you, if you had to choose, right? You ever play the game, Would You Rather? Anyway, my kids love that game. But uh, w- would you rather uh, be successful or loving? I mean, both, right? Of course, both. We all want, we all want both. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you, that you actually have to choose. Because sometimes the reality is, sometimes you do have to choose, right? Sometimes those kind of pit up against themselves, don't they? And so would you rather be known for love, or would you rather be known for off-the-charts awesomeness? Like if, if push came to shove, right? Because I got to tell you, I have been haunted by uh, the story over this past year of uh, the demise of one of the most impressive churches in America. Uh, 15,000 people, 15 campuses in five states, uh, and the senior pastor is a guy that I have, I've admired. I, you know, I've read his books. I've heard him preach. He's, a, he's a, one of the best preachers I have truly ever heard. I don't always agree with him, but man, he's, he's, he's awesome, right? At, at gifted. And sometimes it's like, I wish I, wish I was like that, right? Uh, you know, so I could, you know, bring glory to Jesus or something, Right? <laughs> Uh, not so that I could be famous or powerful or have people like me or, or anything like that. Of course, of course not. But why, why did his church crumble? It completely crumbled from what it was in, in a matter of months. How did, it, how did that happen? Well, it wasn't because of lack, of lack of giftedness by any means. In fact, I mean, that was certainly there. Uh, nor, nor was it because of some like huge sort of moral explosion, right? He didn't embezzle, he didn't run off with his assistant, nor did he, he drift theologically. Nothing, nothing, nothing like that all, at all. So why? And as, a, as a pastor, I mean, I need to know, right? These are the kind of things that I lose sleep over. Why did it crumble? Why did it fall apart? Well, every source coming out of that situation has basically said the exact same thing. It was because he was a jerk. That's it. Nothing, nothing particularly flashy or exciting or dramatic at all, but simply that he was a jerk. Words like belligerent and domineering and self-obsessed and arrogant and coercive, all are words that you find if you read about this situation. And, and please hear me here. I, don't, I, I hope you know me well enough. Some of you probably do. Others of you have no idea who I am, so that's okay. Um, but I, I don't say any of that. Uh, to throw stones at this um, brother in in Christ. That's not it at all, regardless of his mistakes or his choices or any of that. I I, I say this simply as as a moment for, like, personal confession and accountability, right? Because I I know my my liabilities. I know my issues. And so I have to go back to that same question. Would you rather be loving or would you rather be successful? Would you rather people think you were great? And so for me, would I rather have somebody come up to me and say, hey, you know what, Nathan, you're just, you're the best preacher I've ever heard. Or, or say, you know, I've never felt more loved in a church 
Yeah, but what about my preaching, right? Or maybe that's, maybe that's an unfair sort of characterization, right? Because we're rarely forced to choose between awesomeness and, and love. Maybe a better way of saying it is, what would you trade in order to be awesome? Like, what would you give up, right? Maybe a little gentleness, maybe a tiny bit of patience, maybe presence with those that you do care about, right? You, just time. What would, you, what would you trade? What would that look like for you at, at work, for example, I mean, would you rather be known for your ruthlessly outstanding performance or as somebody who, who does really good work, yet who actually loves her coworkers and her clients? Or, or kids on the soccer field, right? You want to be great out there, right? And you want, you want to do your best, of course, all of that. But, but would, you, would you rather be great even at the expense of those around you? Would you be great at any cost out there? Or what about parents? I mean, because I know the answer on this one for myself, right? I mean, of course, if, if you're a parent, you want, at the end, right, when, when, your parent, when your kids move out, you want them to be able to look back and say, you know what, the greatest thing about my parents was their, their love for me, their love for each other, their love for others, and their love for this God who loves us, right? That's, man, I, I want that. I want my kids to be able to say that. But if we were to peer into each other's windows... Is that what we'd see? Do we parent for performance or for love? I don't like this game anymore. It's hard, isn't it? And all of this is true, this tension that we feel. It's true whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're young or old, whether you live in this century or 2,000 years ago. Because we've been talking about this ancient church for quite some time, right? This, this church there in the city of Corinth so, so long ago. And, and we've said over and over, they've got some pretty awesome people there, right? I mean, they, like the super spirituals, they've kind of divided up into this like, sort of artificial class system there within the church. The people who, who are flashy and, and, and seem to have everything all together and people want, you know, people want to be them, right? They're, they're the, the, kind of the awesome ones there in that place. And they are amazing and so we've been talking about these spiritual gifts the last few weeks together, right? That if you're a Christian, you have been given a supernatural ability to serve Jesus. That, that you have a gift or gifts within you. And that it is, it is your responsibility to, to find out what those gifts are, to use those gifts. But those gifts, they're not for you, right? We've, we've said that over and over again. They are to you, but they're not for you. They're not about you. They're about the good of, of the people around you, right? And so, when we're talking about these gifts, that's the context. And then we come to one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible. A passage that, that we, frankly, we notoriously rip out of context, right? Um, we, we pull it apart from, from where it is, and we sentimentalize it as if there are words better suited for a greeting card than words to actually live by. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to I read this for us. Um, and I want to read all of it so we can kind of uh, get the picture. But I actually even want to back up just a tiny bit into chapter 12 so we understand Paul's argument of why this incredible chapter on love, one of the most familiar passages in the whole Bible, why, why is it here? Why does Paul go there in this context? So Paul, he's just listed out 
whole bunch of spiritual gifts, right? That's how chapter 12 ends. You know, this, this, and this, and all these different ways that, that God has gifted people to build up, to edify the church. And then he says in, in verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. More excellent than all these amazing spirit-given abilities. Better than the gifts of the spirit is the fruit of the spirit. And so now our text, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's word? Uh, often we do that when we read the, the whole passage together as part of our tradition here. Um, we want, to, we want to do that. Let me read now. So that's, that's the backdrop of what Paul's saying. Now in verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Oh, I hear those words and I want that, right? I mean, don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to experience that, to be, to be loved like that and to actually love others like that? I mean, I don't, Again, I don't, I don't think it matters who you are, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you buy into any of this or not, to hear those words, to see such a beautiful description and say, yes, yes, I want that. I want that in my life. I want that in my relationships. And, and there's, there's a lot here that we could talk about, right? This, this passage is, is chock full of, of important stuff for us, but we're gonna, we're gonna try to focus as, as simply as we can. And if, if you remember only one thing from our time together this morning, right? If you forget everything else, I hope that it's this. If you remember anything, let it be this, that love trumps awesome. It's simple, right? It's not that hard. That's, that's what we need to take away from this. Love trumps awesome. It's better. It's better. And Paul's gonna give us three reasons why as we walk through this. Love trumps awesome because love is better than greatness. Second, because love is better than warm feelings. And third, because love is only going to get better. It's only going to get better. So, here we are. Love is better than greatness. I know some of you have probably tuned me out already, right? It does sound like a greeting card. Are you kidding? Right? It's so sentimental. Like, love is better than greatness. That's not the way our world works, is it? Survival of the fittest, right? And so, and so we hear those words, and I, if we're honest, I mean, even though we want that, we desire it, we feel like Paul's lost his mind, right? Does, that he doesn't possibly live on planet Earth to say that this is the way our lives ought to look. How can it, 
how can it be? I mean, even look again at, at those first three verses. And we've got them on the screen here, but I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to follow along as well. But in, in those first three verses, now, now think about this, because when we, when we read this out of context, chapter 13, and we see the words, but I have not love, if I have not love, I am nothing, right? Uh, we see that there. In our culture, what we tend to hear is, if I'm not loved, or if I'm not in a loving relationship, then I'm nothing. You know, Paul's just, he's just a hopeless romantic, isn't he? You know, bless his heart, right? And we've, frankly, we've heard this read at enough weddings to convince us that that's what Paul really means, right? I mean, that's what sort of happens when we, when we push it outside of its context. You and I, I mean, let's be honest, we have so idolized the feelings of love and of being loved that we miss what he's actually saying. Paul's not talking about being loved here. He's talking about being loving. He's saying that you can be the most amazing person on the planet. And we're talking like superhero status. You you can be able to do anything, know anything, see anything. I mean, just people want to be you, right? You're that great. But if you're not loving, Jimmy crack corn and nobody cares. (laughs) Least of all, God. Like, even he, like, it's great. Wow, you can do all that. Don't care, right? That's, that's what Paul is saying. Look, look how he, he breaks this down. I mean, so what if you could speak in tongues? And that's, that's the, the issue that they're specifically dealing with, right? And, and, and speaking in tongues in that church is a huge deal there in Corinth. We'll talk about that more next week. But they're, they're speaking in these unknown languages, and they're so proud of their ability that they're, they're interrupting each other, Right? They keep cutting each other off. They're trying to, you know, nobody can get a, a word in edgewise. And I, it's cool, I guess, right, that they can do this, this these, these, you know, supernatural experiences. And yet Paul says it's just noise. If, if it's without love, if, if love is not part of the picture, nobody cares. It's, it's like a clanging cymbal. It's a resounding gong. Big deal. And then he goes on to prophecy. Some, some have the gift of prophecy, right? And that's, that's um, also a big deal there. It's speaking forth God's words, but they're interrupting each other as well. I mean, they're just as, they're just as messed up as the other guys, right? And they, they keep saying, basically, well, my word from God is more important from your word from God, so you need to sit down and let me share in the context there of the church, pushing each other out. Paul's like, are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. And then, and then, so those, those are like the two specific things that they are immediately dealing with there in the context. And then Paul like takes it a step further, right? Almost to the point of just being ridiculous, right? He says, you can have faith. Let's say you have faith. Let's just pretend, right? So intense that you can actually say to a mountain, you know, scooch over. And, and, and it does. I mean, that's, that's a person we'd admire, right? That's superhero cool, right? You can do that. And Paul says, it's worthless, absolutely worthless without love. And then he moves away from these kind of supernatural abilities or or gifts here. And he talks about even even devotion. Right? The most extreme picture of devotion, right? Man, you must be such a spiritual person, right? He says you can give everything you own to the poor. Everything. Every penny. Every possession. Give it all to the poor. You could sacrifice your own life for the sake of what you believe. Become a martyr, right? Actually die because you believe this stuff. But if you're loveless, you're still condemned. It's worthless. And nobody cares, least of all God. So question, uh, would you rather be successful or loving? I mean, we all know the right answer. 
come on. It's kind of ridiculous to even ask it, isn't it? I can't believe that's on the screen. We know, we know what to say. See, my problem is I, I just wonder how my kids would answer that question about me. What would they say? My closest friends, what would they say? The people who know me best, what, does Nathan value love or performance? Achievement or relationship? I mean, for example, do you ever imagine what people will say at your funeral? It's going to happen one day, right? And people are going to say something, unless, of course, you've just alienated everybody, right? What are they going to say in those final moments about you, about me? I just read a, a great novel um, a couple weeks ago. I loved it. The Book Thief. Uh, beautifully, beautifully written. Powerful story. Uh, and it's so unique because the whole story is told uh, from the perspective of death. So death is, is the actual narrator telling this, this story. And death is haunted by us humans, which is just such an interesting way to do it, right? And it centers upon this young orphan in World War II Germany. And, and so the entire story is, right, it's, it's, a, it's a, a picture of beauty in the midst of so much that's ugly, of, of hate, of love in the midst of so much that's just hateful, right, of, of all of this, right, there in this, this story. And, and the main character's foster father is really the ideal picture of love in, in every capacity, right, almost, almost in an overtop sense, right? He, he hides a, a Jew in the basement. He feeds a, a starving man even though he's beaten for it. He, he cares for his neighbors in the midst of wartime even though he gets nothing in return. They're actually, you know, starving. They don't have enough food to eat and he's, he's doing all these things, right? He even loves his wife who's really a difficult person to love and he loves this little orphan girl. And, and in the story, it comes time for, for him also to die. I mean, the story is told by death. Hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler alert. Um, but I love how death explains what happens. Death says about him, his soul sat up, it met me. Those kinds of souls always do the best ones. The ones who rise up and say, I know who you are and I am ready. Not that I want to go, of course, but I will come. Those souls are always light because more of them have been given away. More of them have already found their way to other places. So which would you pick? Well, love, of course. We just don't tend to actually live that way, do we? Or, or if we do, by slim chance, right, we actually say, yes, this is what is going to define me. This is what my life is going to be about. If we do, we often confuse what God means by love. We, we tend to project our own, our own sort of cultural definitions, don't we? And so the next place that Paul goes here. Uh, for them and for us, right? So things, I mean, yeah, our worlds have changed, but we still do the same things, right? We still make so many of the same mistakes. And so Paul says to them, love is better than warm feelings. Any, any definition that we can preconceive, this, this is better. I mean, think about that for a second. What if we were to, to rewrite uh, these, this section of Paul's words, right? The whole love is patient, love is kind thing. What would that look like today in our culture? How would it come out? Well, this might be a little bit cynical, but... Let me give it a shot here. I think it goes something like this. Love is temporary. Love is self-centered. Love makes an idol out of the other person, but still for my own gratification. Love is sex, and if not sex, it's providing my kids with every opportunity. Love is all about how I feel, is most definitely conditional, 
and never requires that I actually change. And as such, love always ends. It's about right, isn't it? Quickie divorces, short-term transactional friendships, and a general unwillingness to actually sacrifice for people. You know, this is, this is one of the reasons why I love, by love, of course, I mean hate uh, in this context, um, but why, why I love, like, wedding vows in TV and movies. And I've talked about this before, but, I mean, it's kind of a hobby of mine, right? If I can catch, like, a TV show wedding or whatever, I mean, it's just, it's, they're hilarious because those vows, they are to love what spam is to meet, right? It's just a, a cheap, artificial attempt, isn't it? And if you listen close, I mean, they don't actually say this, but so often what happens is if you listen close, you can hear that they're really more about the person who's making the vow than the person who's being promised to, right? Than the person who's supposedly loved, right? And so essentially they come out as, you know, I will love you as long as you keep making me happy. Well, great. Good for you, right? We're also very impressed. And I think what's happened for us, for me, uh, personally, this is, I feel this in my life, and I, I think we've done this as, as, a, as a whole, as, as a people, is that we've confused essentially two words. We've confused the words happiness and love. And somehow along the way, we, we've begun to think that these are actually one and the same, and that, that's just, that's, that's not the definition that we have here. And so happiness, I mean, that's an important thing, right? We want to be happy. We want, we want to feel those warm feelings, and we want to feel them in the relationships around us, right? We, we crave those things. We love to feel happy. But because we confuse these words, so often we end up saying, I love you. Uh, but we, what, we, what we mean to say is at this particular moment, you happen to be making me happy, right? Which, of course, is about, about me, Right? And so we think love means happiness. So if happiness is gone, then we assume that love must be as well. Or, or we do the opposite, right? And get into relationships much faster than we should, right? We, we assume because happiness is there, well, this must be love. And so it's got, it's got to be the right thing. We, we've essentially lost the meaning of these two words. And so, so of course we don't sacrifice, right? I mean, or change or, or work it out. None of those things make me happy. Now, sure, there ought to be overlap in these things. Right? Let's, let's hope that there's overlap with these things. But happiness is the glitter in a relationship, not the glue. And glitter's great, right? Ask my six-year-old girl, right? Glitter's awesome. But it's not the glue, right? Love is the glue, right? It's the, the mess that's left over even after the, the glitter tends to fade or some of it falls off, but it's still, it still remains. And God's definition is very different from ours. I mean, while love ought to be satisfying at times, right? Let's, let's hope that it is. What's so interesting about his definition here that, that he gives us through the Apostle Paul is that there's not a word on this list that even hints at personal gratification. Not even close. So here's what love is. According, according to him, and, and here's, here's why we think that's important. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, but we, we, hear, we believe that God invented us, right? He made us, he created us, and he invented this thing called love. And so if anybody knows what it is, it's going to be him, right? And he's outside of our culture, right? So he doesn't, he doesn't merely look at us from our own sort of preconceived notions or, or internal biases. And so if there is a definition, and if he has given us one, then we, we need to listen to it. We need, we're desperate. Look at, look at the, the state of our relationships, right? So here's what love is in marriage, in family, every friendship, the people we encounter, and the people in here. Look, look what he says, beginning in verse, verse 4. 
He begins with the word patience. That it it waits and endures. One of the old translations of the word patience is long-suffering. That sounds fun. To suffer long. But don't miss that. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's accidental. I mean, particularly in the context of what's going on there in that community, and particularly the context of all of our relationships, right? Don't miss that he begins with pain. He begins by saying, it's going to hurt. It's not always going to satisfy. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to make us happy. It is patience. It requires patience at, at its very core. It involves suffering. He goes on and says it's, it's kind. He says it, it doesn't envy what they have or boast about what I have, which, again, in the context of Corinthians, right, as they're arguing, they're boasting, they're you know, competing with one another. It makes, makes a lot of sense. But essentially, that kind of behavior, right, it doesn't make any sense to envy and boast within a context of love because you actually want the person you love to have the bigger piece of the pie. Imagine that, right? I always want the big piece, Right? And you actually want them to get more applause than you do, than you get. And so, of course, you want them to have the, the cooler gift, right? There's, there's no room, Paul is saying, for arrogance. It's, it's got to be humility in a context like this. He says it's not rude, uh, nor does it always have to get its own way. He said, I mean, think about that for a second, right? Gosh, if I could just do that right, not having to get my own way. I mean, are you, are you willing to consistently choose your spouse's happiness over your own? Or your little brother's or whoever's? Even if it means less happiness for you. That's, that's what he says love is. It's not irritable or easily angered. Don't ask my kids how I'm doing on that one. It doesn't, doesn't let the little things destroy it, destroy us. It's not petty. Man. It says it's not resentful, which means it, it doesn't keep a, a list, like a tally of the ways that you've been wronged. Again, just imagine like choosing not to focus on the many ways the people you love have hurt you. Some of those things go away, right? But they just don't become the definition of the relationship. They're pushed aside. Yeah, I've been hurt. There's no record of wrongs here. In verse 6, it doesn't celebrate wrong. It's not, it's not okay with injustice, right? Or, or, or abuse or, or sin of any kind. Love, love has standards. It rejoices with the truth, he says. And love, uh, love bears the unbearable. It believes the unbelievable best about the person you love. It hopes for their very best at all times. And it endures. But just picture for a moment a community where that kind of behavior exists. Because Paul's talking about the church, right? I mean, that's where it begins. Not that there's not context or, or ways for us to apply this in every relationship. Certainly we should and, and we will, but it begins, begins here. Imagine a community of people that live like that. Here, here in this room, 
right, or, or your community group, right, your small, small group. Imagine it. I mean, competing, right? One-upping, hiding an insecurity and fear. It's just, it doesn't make any sense, right? There's no, there's no way that that could make sense in a context like this. Imagine your home like this. Imagine what it, what it would, would look like to, to love your, your neighbors like this. What would happen if you loved the people you work with or went to school with like this? I mean, this is, this is love like we have never seen it before. Like, like we can't even imagine, right? There's, there's, there's hardly a picture for us to get our minds around. And so, yes, we may agree that love trumps awesome. But how we define love makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And so even as I read these shocking words, right, this impossible definition, let's call it what it is, right? At, at, at face value, this is, this is impossible stuff that God is calling us to, and yet the question that clobbers me in the face is, am I willing to work for it? Because you can't escape that, right? From, if you read this and you want to take it even a little bit seriously, you, you just can't, you can't escape that. And it's so easy to say, well, love, you know, it should come easy, right? And we all know that that's a stupid thing to say, right? We know that that's not true, and yet we just really deep down wish that it was, understandably, right? And we try to live as if it were. We know better than that. And so we can't read this without being struck, I can't anyway, by the ridiculous amount of work it's going to take. Because we make love, we fall in and out of love. According to this definition, rarely do we actually love. So are we chasing just a fleeting feeling? Chasing after a, a, a tiny bit of happiness, right? Clinging to that, and we, we want that, that's important, but is that, is that what you're running after? Or are you pursuing a lifestyle of committed self-sacrifice? Even when it hurts? I mean, according to this definition, real love is a choice. It's, it's not an impulse. It's located in our wills, not in our emotions. And I know some of the objections, right? It feels so fake, doesn't it? Come on, Nathan. We're supposed to be true to ourselves and et cetera, right? So, Nathan, are you, are you saying that we, pre- we should pretend to love even, though, even when we don't feel love? Not really. I think what Paul is saying is that it's not pretending to love. Not, not, not if this is the definition, right? Even if you don't feel like, that's actually core to the definition is continuing to love even when you don't feel like, like loving. And so I don't think it's faking it. I don't think it's pretending. I don't think it's, it's being untrue. We just don't have a big enough definition for love. Besides, nobody's impressed when you love the person you feel like loving. It's a big deal. So you like people who are kind to you. You like the people who are, who are nice to you. You, lo- you. you respond well when people are, affirm you and, and you feel loved by them. Who cares, right? We all do. You want a trophy? I mean, it doesn't make it. What's really impressive, though, is when we love against all odds, when we love even when it hurts, when it's not fun, even when we feel the pain, even when we get nothing in return and we keep loving. Another book I just finished, and believe me, this one is not, not uh, for everyone, um, so don't everybody go out and read it. I've not seen the movie, but I just finished the book uh, Gone Girl. Uh, and frankly, it destroyed me. Um, let me just say, I, I told Kelly that when I finished reading it that I would never trust another human being as long as I live. So, um, so not, I already have trust issues, so there's that. Um, 
But this is not a story to go to for relational advice, okay? Uh, not, not in the least. And yet I'm, I'm, I want to quote it anyway because it's such a fascinating commentary on our sort of cultural understanding of relationships. Because uh, at one point the reader says, or the, the, the husband says to the reader, so it's, it's written in the first person, uh, says this, this, these two sentences. I'll read them in a second. Uh, but one is like, I mean, they, they contradict each other. And, and I, think it's, it's, I think it's what we do, right? We, we think love ought to be like this. We know, we long for something more, and yet we always revert back to this sort of self-centered, narcissistic way. Um, so let me, let me read what he says. Um, so he, he begins with, love makes you want to be a better man, okay? So I think Paul would agree with that. Um, and again, it shows deep down, yes, we, we, we're tired of the watered-down version that we're spoon-fed, right? And we want it to be about something more. We know that love ought to change us. But then, like an idiot, he doesn't shut up there. Uh, and this is where we tend to go. This is where I tend to go, right? So we, we, we say, yes, love is more, and it should change me. Yada, and then and we go and we say, so here, here's the full quote. Love makes you want to be a better man, but maybe love, real love, also gives you permission to just be the man that you are. The man I am. Gross. I mean, I'm the most selfish person I know. That's not, a, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, I, I look at this list, and even on my best days, I maybe get one or two of them halfway, right? Left to my own devices, I'm none of these things. On my own, are you kidding? This, this holding both of these, right? That's not love, right? That's narcissism, isn't it? I mean, is there any wonder that our relationships are in such a mess? And so let me just suggest one simple next step before we move on to the last point. We've got a little bit more uh, to cover in this text. I, I don't want to miss that, but we've, we need just need to pause for a second, because my fear is when we read a text like this or, or a list like this, first of all, for many of us, it's so familiar, right, that it's just kind of like, all right, I've heard this before, and let's move on, right? Um, but the other thing is that, for me, I read this, and st- I, once I start taking it seriously, let it sink in just a tiny bit, I get so overwhelmed that I'm just like, well, I guess that's not who I am, right? right? I mean, doesn't it, you just read that, it's like, how do I begin to even start with all of these things? And so that's my fear for us, that we walk away and we just be overwhelmed, right? Because we're all, hopefully, I think, overwhelmed by this passage, and yet that cannot be the solution. And so I want to offer just one quick next step. This week, today, pick one or two and say, today I'm going to love so-and-so in this way because of, because of what Paul says here. Just one or two things. Start there, right? If you say, I'm going I'm to master this whole list, I mean, maybe make that a lifelong goal of slowly becoming a little bit better in all of them, but start small. Give, your, give yourself a, a tangible goal that you can grab onto. And maybe with this, and this is the hard part. I'll start with the easy part. Um, the hard part is, is ask somebody that you love, somebody that you trust. Ask them where you should get started. You're going to say, hey, here, here's this list, and where do I need the most work? Start, start there. Pick one or two, and then do something about it. Don't, don't let being overwhelmed serve as a cop-out. Real love is better than warm feelings. Finally, a third reason. And we can't miss this. It, it's, it's not where we tend to go with this passage because we kind of, once we get past uh, verse 7, it kind of gets a little bit confusing, right? Um, it's hard for us to get on, but I, I don't want us to miss it. The third reason that love trumps awesome because love is only going to get better, uh, which is really good news, isn't it? It's only going to get better because because we all long for this, every one of us, and yet the very best we humans can muster is still so deeply inadequate. I mean, even if you've had 
nothing but great experiences. Let's say you grew up in a, in a wonderful, perfect home, and some of, some of you did, and praise God for that. Maybe you have an awesome marriage, and you experience it there, and you, you have wonderful relationship, friendships around you, and you feel this. But even the best, okay, let's just say somebody here has all of that, right? Um, even the best still leaves you longing for more. And the reality is most of us have so much heartache along the way. We've had so many people who were supposed to love us, take advantage of us or ignore us. So many, so many relationships that have split apart. We, we have been hurt so deeply. And yet, I love where Paul goes with this because he knows that. He knows that we're not there yet and we need something more. And so he, in verse 8, he says, um, let me get there. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Like these, these other gifts, Right? Uh, for the Corinthians, the things that they were building their lives upon. And for us, it might be other things, right? The things that we live for to tell us that our lives are important. Paul is saying, every one of these things has a shelf life. But love never ends. And then he starts talking about being a child, right? When I was a child, I did childish things, and I put childish... I mean, it gets, it gets confusing, but here's what he's saying. That even the very best love that we can experience now the highest experience that we can imagine in this, in this life. That's all child's play in comparison of what's ahead. It's, it's kid stuff. And no offense, kids. I don't mean that derogatorily. Not a, not a bit. But, that, but we say it's like we haven't even begun. To, we're still as, as like, we're like little kids thinking that this is love and thinking that we can do this and experience this when there's something so much better in store for us. And so in verse, verse 12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That, that our love today, it's like looking in a foggy mirror, right? You kind of rub it down, you kind of can see a little bit, you get, you get a glimpse, you know what's, what's going on, and yet it's, it's not anything like it's supposed to be. And for some of us, I mean, you hear these words of Paul, and sure, maybe you, maybe you like them, you wish they were true of you, and yet it feels so desperately out of reach, almost like it's a cruel joke, right? You've been abused, you've been neglected, betrayed maybe by somebody who was supposed to love you, and just disappointed. And all of us know that feeling to some extent, but some of us, it just feels cruel in this moment. And your relationships, they're a far cry from what God intends, and you want to love like this. You want to be loved like this, but right now it just feels like a joke. But what Paul is saying there is that it's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be so hard. We're not always going to feel so lonely. We're not always going to feel as if there are people around us who think they know us that don't really know us, Right? That it's not always going to be like this. And so even those relationships that are hardest right now, I don't know what that is for you. For some of you, it's your, it's your marriage, right? If you're married. Uh, for some of you, that is the place where you just you feel this pain. But the reality is what Paul is getting at here is if you are both followers of Jesus, that there is a day coming when you will, you will see your spouse as they were always meant to be. From the very beginning the very best parts of them shining forth and all of, the, all of the ugly stuff, all the mess that we get so wrapped up in, all of it will be taken away. It will be gone and it will be gone forever. That there, there is a day coming when you and I will love like that and not, not just marriage, but for all of us, that we will see each other for who we really are. All of it. You'll know me completely and I'll know you and still we'll love each other. 
that, that there, is a, there is a day coming, right, when God makes everything right. That there, there is a sense in which as we look at our relations, we look at the people around us, look at the people in this room or in your community group, right, but even the ones who are really hard to love, that we're not just loving them who they are now, we're loving who God is creating them to be, who they will be one day in the future. We've got to, we've got to see that in our minds, right, as best as we can, that this yes, okay, maybe it is a mess, right? Maybe that person is the worst, right? But God's not done with them yet. And he's not done with you yet. And there's a day when all will be made right and love will be perfected and we'll be able to see each other as God sees us, as we were always meant to see each other. That our love, it's only going to get better. Oh, great, Paul. That's really, really inspiring. Thank you for that. Um, I can't wait till then, Paul. It's great, but we live here now and it's not perfect and it's, it's hard. So how do we actually learn to love like this now? Because here's the deal. We can try, can't we? And we will, right? We should. We'll fail because we're lousy at it, but we'll keep trying, hopefully. And some of us, we're afraid to, aren't we? You know, maybe you think, if I give myself this fully to another person, I'm, how do I know I'm not going to get hurt, Nathan? How do I know? You don't. And actually, chances are you will get hurt. Or, or maybe, maybe you think, you know, when somebody loves me like this, then, then I will be able to love like that. Then I'll be able to do this. Friends, this is what's so beautiful. You are loved like that. The only possible way to love like this is to be loved like this. And Jesus is the only person who actually embodies all of this. Every bit of it, right? He is the example of all of these things. He is so patient with us. I mean, we who run from him, who hide from him, who on some days, like, would do anything we possibly could to destroy him, he keeps pursuing us, loving us. He goes so far as to come here to this world that he made to enter our life and to give his own life, to sacrifice everything. He always longs the best for the best for us, always does sacrifices on our behalf. He is love. Don't, don't hoard his love. And you know, by our definitions, by our definitions, Jesus was anything but awesome. Really, right? He rejected fame, fortune, power, all sort of normal definitions of success. He could have had all of it. And yet he chose to pursue us. To give all of it up. To love me, to love you like we're desperate for. And people, this isn't just theory. These aren't just nice words on a page or something for a greeting card. Or it's not, it's not it. It's that those who are loved like this are actually free to love like this. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to gather around the Lord's table, communion. In fact, the early church, some of them referred to it as, as a love feast, Right? Uh, this moment of, of love, this high pinnacle, uh, uh, what churches have, have celebrated for 2,000 years together, that we center ourselves around this, this remembrance, right? The highest expression of love when Jesus gives his life for his enemies. And he gives his life for us. Before we come, though, why don't we take a minute? Let's, let's pray quietly. Um, if, if prayer is kind of new to you, maybe just think through these things. But for all of us to, to think through, what are, what are the things you need to confess? Because I've got some. 
I'm guessing you probably do too. Things that you need to, you need to ask for forgiveness from God and probably from somebody else. What are, what are some plans you need to make as a result if you're actually going to say, yes, this is what I want because I have been loved like this and I can, I can do this. He has called me to this. It is possible. What are some of those steps you need to take? We don't want to walk out of here, right, and just sort of have this as a distant memory. Let God begin that work in your life, in my life now, so that we can live the way he's called us to be with joy and with beauty. Okay, so let's, let's pray quietly together. Let's do that now.